When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the 14th episode of Kiwi and the Bird, Book Nerds in Session. I'm Taylor. I'm Kami. And in this episode, we are going to go into an in-depth discussion about the fantastical and dreamy The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern. Now, as we discuss everything, and I mean everything, here is your one and only spoiler Spoiler alert. Kami, would you like to give us a spoiler alert sound effect? Spoilers. Spoilers. Spoiler alert. And now, on to the show. So, I would die for this romance. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I, I mean, okay, okay. Let's just back it up here. Okay? Beep, beep. They're essentially enemies to lovers. Essentially. Kind of, I would say kind of like rivals to lovers. Because they're in a competition. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Marco and Celia. So yes, Marco and Celia would be rivals to lovers, except I don't think they ever thought of each other as rivals. You know, it was just like the person they were going against. And then, and then, Marco sees Celia for the very first time, and that boy is hooked, whipped, and sinkered. He looked at her, and it was, it was just over then. Mm -hmm. You know, the competition was never going to succeed as soon as he saw her. And you kind of get that sense, I think. As soon as he sees you, you just go, oh, you two are screwed. (laughs) I also just really liked the scene where Marco and Celia meet for the first time because obviously, like, Celia is going to audition to be the illusionist for the circus. And, like, that's going to be, like, her first move in this competition that her father's put her in. But it's, like, you see Celia's power. It was just very cool, by the way. Like very elegant and yes. graceful. Yes, she's she's very good at physical manipulation. And just like, just Marco's reaction throughout all of it was just my favorite. Like you, like you know, but like she doesn't know, and the other people don't know, but the reader knows, and he knows, and he knows, he realizes, and it's, it's just it's a good scene. I think in that moment, Marco kind of had to backtrack because I think he didn't realize how powerful his opponent could be because he himself was had become so much of a so much of a master of his own magic that he hadn't considered what his opponent opponent could be capable of doing and so when she came in she was like hey your notebook dove (laughs) (laughs) I think then he kind of goes I need to take this more seriously actually when he first sees her, I think his competitiveness is is stoked a little bit because he kind of freaks out and he goes back to his apartment. He's kind of rifling through all the all of his books and everything. And Isabel's like, "Dude, what happened?" <laughs> He's like, "She's amazing. She's so freaking cool, and I'm freaking out." Base that is, it's accurate. Accurate. It's just so funny because even like even if he doesn't didn't want to admit it, she she was just in his mind. All the time after that. And it wasn't because of the competition. And you know it. And it's just... 
it's also, even though you don't really realize this when you first read it, it's a romance that also, it goes for years. Yeah, it took me a little bit to realize that when I first read it, because when when each chapter opened up with a little quote from Herr Thiessen, Thiessen, right? I think that's how I pronounce it. I, I, we all know I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> I didn't realize that the years were actually tracking years. I actually thought Herr Thiessen was a historical figure, and then I realized he was a character in the book. I'm like, oh, I'm dumb, but that means that she wrote him really smart to make it seem like he was an actual real person. Anyways, I'm getting off track. But it it did take me a second to realize this is going through years of of so much time in between when Celia and Marco are having these little interactions. And in the beginning, the interactions are really small. It's toward the end of the book that I would say that things kind of gain momentum. Mm-hmm. Especially since... As the romance is building up, it is built up through a, a, I would say around what ten years. I I would think I I feel like that's the majority of the majority the of it, and since you know the romance isn't really like the main folk like it's it it's an important factor in the story, but I wouldn't say it's like the main focal point. It's an aspect of the plot almost. Yes, so you don't get a whole lot of it. Like it's not central focus. But you get enough of it where you get really excited for it, you know? And I think that with the dialogue, Aaron Morgenstern does a really good job of filling the time in between. Because when you have a romance going over years, it can be really easy for things to feel empty or detached. Like, oh, how... There's so much time that we're missing. How are they this close? But I think the way she wrote it, you can sense the intimacy even though we are skipping years and even though we are only having these little pieces of time where they're together. What would you say is your favorite scene with them? Oh, Ooh, that's actually really hard. Um, my first instinct is the ballroom. Oh, the ballroom. Just because I feel like that was kind of an emotional climax because they have that moment in the hallway and then Marco's mentor stops him and he's like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> you clearly lost focus on the competition. <laughs> and and then Marco says, I love her. And he goes, everything amazing that I did, everything that I could have ever wanted to create, I created for her. Not for you, not even for me, not for the competition. I wanted to... I, she was just his sole purpose in imagining. She gave his creativity life. You know, she was the basis for everything he wanted to be, everything that he wanted his creativity to be. And so I loved then how afterward he's like, screw you, mentor, Alexander in a gray suit. And he goes back into the ballroom and he's like, Celia. And he kisses her and I'm like, yeah, woo, yeah. Here we go. Yep. <laughs> Is, I will, it was perfectly climax. Is that a word? It is now. Great. Um, <laughs> but, like, it's, you're, it was built... Okay, so she, what Erin Morgenstern did in that scene is she kind of, like, put the basis down for the romantic tension with, like, their little moment in the in the hallway. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> I actually, like, that's just a really small moment that I've always just really loved. It's always kind of stuck with me. Mm-hmm. But then she kind of, like, goes into, like, the tension between Marco and his mentor 
and the just like that building up all the way up to the room going back to the romantic tension with Celia and Marco and it's just and then everyone afterwards was like what why is it so hot in here <laughs> oh get your fans out <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite moments was actually before that when um, they're, Marco's giving Celia a tour of Chandresh's house. And he's, they're just like going through these beautiful, like beautifully described rooms. But then he, he shows her his magic of being able to make these great illusions of places, basically. Like a, a different scene. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you feel... There's just such intimacy in that scene, in the whole scene, really. And when they're kind of like dancing alone in the ballroom, just late at night, and then they touch each other's fingers, and it's electric, and you're like, oh, that's the magic in the in the in the binding, but it's also love. And with great power comes great responsibility <laughs> to kiss. <laughs> it's just. Even though there aren't a ton of interactions between Celia and Marco, since, again, the romance isn't a focal point, you still feel the intimacy between them. Mm -hmm. And you still root for them. I also really liked that scene in the mansion. Uh, It actually helped clarify a lot for me. Like how Celia said, how are you making everyone stop aging? And, you know, also I was going, oh, it, it... connected a lot of things for me but I also loved how they both had a mutual respect and admiration for what the other person could do Mm. they didn't just dink each other because they were competitors when Marco creates that one of those uh scenery illusions she participates in it and she loves it and she goes how do you do this you know and it and and when Marco sees what Celia does in return he too is just blown away by it it's like they both astounded each other with their magic and they didn't penalize each other because of one another's brilliance. I think I said that in a weird way when I re-record. <laughs> when I re-listen, it'll probably be really messed up. But I just liked how underneath the attraction and the romance, there was just also that very pure respect. Again, it's not nagging. It's not going, oh, my opponent can do that. <laughs> it can't. You know, it wasn't jealousy. They just, I think they truly blew each other away. One really cute moment during the mansion scene also was when Celia's like, stop doing that to your face, to Marco. And he was like, what? What am I doing? She's <laughs> I like, don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> she's like, my father does the exact same thing. Like, you, that's not going to work on me. And then, like, he reveals her, his true face. And she's like, yeah, I like that one better. And I'm like, oh. And from then on, it's kind of a thing that, you know, always use your true face with me. It's kind mm-hmm. of almost like a trust thing. It is. If you wear your true face, then I know I'm actually talking to you. And it's just, and we're separate from the game. (sighs) Like you said, the romance is so subtle, but each moment is super distinguished in my mind. I think in some romance books, there's just so much romance that you can't even keep track of each moment. And so each moment doesn't feel special. But every moment that Marco and Celia are able to have in the night circus feels so special because they are so sparse. And they feel so full and heavy because of that as well. I think a part of what made the romance great was the fact that they were anonymous to each other before Marco first saw Celia at the audition. And then Celia then realized in that scene in the rain. With the umbrella. With the umbrella that Marco was her opponent. And like 
even from like that scene, even when they're they're not even technically even starting to be romantic. No, that's that was probably the start of when they were being romantically involved. Simply because, I mean, she was kind of like, what? Why am I not getting wet with this umbrella? <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> and then like he runs after her and then he's like, do you want to go get a cup of tea? I think it was what, Prague? I think so. Something I, like that. I, this was my first time reading it, so I'm not definite. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm the one to consult. But... And, and then he's like, would you like to go get a cup of tea? And she's like, maybe another time. She's, like, so cheeky. When she did that, that was like, you take the fucking cup of tea, woman! <laughs> uh, but apart, I also, no, with, with their, with Celia and Marco's romance, I liked how it, it kind of furthered their defiance to their mentors. Since both of them were, were just completely unsure of, like, the rules of the competition and why they were doing this and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so when they found that they loved each other... It was just like, that was kind of like the stepping stone in their rebellion against their mentors. It was like, we don't want to do this. It was the ultimate card they could play because nothing can beat love. Food. Okay. Food can beat love. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but then you have love for food, which is then again, love. Ooh. And, and that you can't cancel that out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but also just the fact even though the the circus, the cir- the uh, circus, we're just gonna say circus of dreams for pronunciation <laughs> reasons. Uh, but in the circus of dreams, it was supposed to be their place to have their competition, to have their exhibition, right? But then as Celia and Marco became further romantically involved, they started making tents for each other, which was adorable. I mean, actually, they started making tense for each other before they even really knew each other but like the fact that they like got more and more thoughtful as like the as the book progressed was just adorable i mean marco made celia an ice garden an ice garden it's beautiful (laughs) what i love too is that because like you said in the beginning with the romance they weren't necessarily making the tents for each other even though they were they were making the the tents to outperform their opponent right but they were still, in a sense, making the tents for each other. But then that did turn into something real and something magical and something that became, I think, Sukiko, and I really hope I'm pronouncing that right. I think that's right. how you pronounce it. Uh, I think she described it as, I've seen the love letters you two have passed to each other because each tent is a love letter. But kind of the coolest love letter ever. Make me a tent. <laughs> Don't send me paper. Don't send me. Make me a labyrinth. <laughs> it's just, it's, it was a very unique expression of love. Mm-hmm. It was also just a beautiful expression of love because other people could enjoy it as well. Like people would go through the ice gardens and be astounded by the details and just the sheer beauty of it. Or they'd go to, into the cloud maze and be filled with wonder. Oh, it's just so cute. I just love the idea that someone loved someone so much that they made something so brilliant. There's one, the one aspect about the romance that always makes me feel bad, though, is Isabel. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) she got a little wrecked. (laughs) She got completely wrecked. I mean, I kind of understand it on Marco's part, especially since while he was studying under Alexander... 
he didn't really have the chance to socialize with people, right? He was always very, he was very lonely and he only really, really had his books and his studies to really surround him. And so then when he finally gets some freedom in London, when he's like, what, I think it was, what, 19? I think so. He meets Isabel, who he kind of mentions at the beginning. He's like, oh, you know, she's kind of pretty. She's interesting. She Because, you know, she has his book, his notebook that he left back in the cafe. And she's reading through it and, like, they kind of talk. And I thought that they were actually kind of cute. Like, you know, they had, like, their banter. And then they make out all of a sudden in the rain <laughs> while he shows her this illusion of, like, this forest, which also, I mean... Dude's got props. Yeah, I was just gonna say, his moves with the whole illusion things, he's nailing it. He really is. And then after that, Isabel is kind of like, well, how do I help you? You know? Because she loves him. Like, she absolutely does. And even though, but Mark, oh, Marco. He didn't have to, he didn't have to do it like that. He didn't. He, like, even though, I think Isabel herself says this, where she's like, she wasn't ever really sure if he loved her. She just wanted him to love her. And in the sense that she was in love with the idea that he could love her. Or that yes. he was in love with her. And, like, he was, like, she was kind of, like, his, his, the first person that he befriended, like, on his own. Like, Isabel, he wanted to keep Isabel away from the competition and the circus because, like, she was the one aspect of his life that he chose. Mm-hmm. But then Isabel's like, well, how are you going to go around in the circus? How is this going to work for you? Like, I want you to win this competition. And so the only reason she goes into the circus is for Marco. But then he falls in love with Celia the very first moment he sees her. And she knows this, but then she st- she sticks around. Even her time. cards are like, girl, you got, <laughs> you got like, you're going to get messed up. Your heart's going to get freaking broken. I think the saddest part, too, is that... When Marco first meets Isabel, I think he did develop a really deep bond with her. And he obviously cherished her company. And he, I think he appreciated everything that she did for him. But I don't think he could ever love her for the simple fact that his focus was wholly on the competition. His whole drive and purpose in life was just winning. And so he, it's kind of like he couldn't love anything outside of that. Because that was his whole soul. I think at times Marco wanted to be more than just this competitor in this competition and have that be his whole life, which is why he kind of let Isabel into his life. But it didn't quite work out that way. And then when you throw Celia into it, which Marco was like, hey, how you doing? (laughs) Then... Not only is this competition his soul, but it's also become his love as well for her. Ooh, imagine Isabel, though. She's reading tarot cards, and then she's like, oh, there's a new tent. I'll go check it out. And it's Marco's freaking love letter to Celia, <laughs> and it's an ice garden. Oh. I mean, ouch. And there's that, oh, gosh. And there's that scene where he finally tells her, like, he finally confronts Isabel, and she's like, did you ever love me? And he, Marco just straight up says, no. (laughs) Marco! (laughs) Where's the charm? Where's the charm now? (laughs) Where's the illusion now? Where's the forest? (laughs) Though, I don't think he meant it, like, no. I, I don't think he meant to be malicious with it. I think he intended to be honest, and with that honesty, I don't, 
think he also intended to be harsh, but it sounds like that simply because I think he really organizes his emotions and that that emotion never was hers. No. No. Oh, but then when they, well, when, um, the death of Heritheusen really affected Celia and she was like, this is what this competition is doing, right? But then they kind of, would you say fall into a steamy situation? Well, Celia opens the door into his apartment, so I guess it's more like she walked into it. <laughs> <laughs> and and emotions are high. Emotions are very the high. The blood be running through the veins. I don't think I fully understood this scene when I read it, because I first read this book when I was like 13 or 14. And you, I don't get like implications <laughs> I still, like it's very difficult for me to do this i don't okay. understand sexual hints <laughs> i don't get innuendo innuendo it, what the f- innuendo that's the word innuendos okay okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i don't know if i said it right <laughs> i don't understand so like when this scene first happened i was like oh they have another kissing it's, it's not that no there was this one line where it's like he wrapped the laces of her corset around his hands and brought her to the floor. Uh-huh. I was like, oh. <laughs> no, there's this, oh, the one, the one line that got to me was trapped in silence, Marco traces apologies and adorations across Celia's body with his tongue. Yeah. I was like, damn. Like, I read, I, I read like, it now and I was like, I was like, this boy grew up oh. by himself. How is this even a thing? <laughs> I was like, why is he good at this? <laughs> But then in the next chapter, her dad's like, hey, you slut. <laughs> I believe, I believe, well, okay, also she, like, <laughs> I was simply like, oh, in case, he's coming in full throttle, he's not even. Oh, because she steals no- Marco's notebook. Mm-hmm. She does, and then, like, the second she goes out, her father, she, she hears it, you deceitful little slut. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, wow, that's one way to announce yourself. I mean, the first words we hear from Prospero is, fuck me. Yeah. <laughs> Which are like, yeah, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> so at this point, when they have their moment, wink, wink, sizzle, sizzle, <laughs> hot, hot. <laughs> at that point, though, Celia knows that in order for the competition to end, one of them has to die. And obviously, they're in love with each other, so... Nuh-uh. Not... Not the best option. Not ideal. Yeah. So, she's then trying to figure out a way to end the competition without... One of them dying. In which, then Marco comes to see her in her tent. After one of her performances, right? Mm Mm-hmm. He goes there and... He's basically like, you've been avoiding me. She's like, (laughs) nuh-uh. No, he's like, why aren't you looking at me then? <laughs> and then he makes her the cute little illusion. And then Celia's like, no, I don't want to do this anymore. And he's like, why? You're breaking my heart. It broke my heart. And then she's like, it has to kill one of us. And he's like, what? He's like, that's a little vague. <laughs> <laughs> Could you elaborate? <laughs> and then Marco then realizes the competition is about endurance, not necessarily skill, whatever, whatever. And, he's, and then Marco's all like, I don't want to win. 
I want you. And you're like, aww. And they do the cute self-sacrificial thing. I'm like, guys, no, no. Stop just resigning to die, okay? <laughs> try. <laughs> just try. And so then I think, what was it? Sukiko gave Celia a year to try to figure out how to, A, save the circus, and also save herself and Marco. Yeah. In which she kind of does slash doesn't. Because she used the solution, mm-hmm. but after he threw himself into a fire. After, yeah, basically that Tsukiko was going to turn Marco into the bonfire to keep the circus going. And then Celia was like, nah She's like, I don't like what you're doing here, Tsukiko. <laughs> so basically she like runs towards Marco, hugs him, does some magic. Ooh. <laughs> and she basically becomes one with the circus, kind of in the way that her father is, but not quite. She also tried to do it with Marco, but he's lost for a time. For a wee time. Celia's like, I am one with the circus, the circus with me. Marco, you say it. Marco? (laughs) (laughs) I love the moment, though, when in order to try to get Marco back, Celia and Marco talk to Bailey and try to kind of get Bailey to take over the circus so that they're able to kind of be together and da-da-da-da. And that Marco... And sorry, the oh, 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 you know what I'm talking about? Oh, oh. Where they're in the tent with the wishing tree, and Marco explains that you can make a wish by lighting a candle on on another wish, and and Bailey says, "Well, what did you wish for?" And at the very end, Marco goes and whispers, "I wished for her," and you're like, "Oh, the feels!" Oh. <laughs> I was like, Mar- the way that just Marco felt for Celia, like he just felt so strongly for her. Though I have to wonder because we learned that Sukiko is Alexander's past student. She was the one who was involved in the last competition, but she also fell in love with her competitor. Mm-hmm. And so I'm left to wonder, like, is there something about the binding that further enhances these emotions of love? Because whenever Celia and Marco touch, they feel it. They feel the electricity. But, so, are you saying, is are Marco's feelings real or are they just enhanced by the binding? No, I think they're real. I definitely think they are, but I wonder if a part of that has to do with the binding. If it, if it like, makes his fe- the feelings that are already there even stronger. I think, though... Because they, I think they really feel the effects of the binding whenever they touch. And they didn't touch for the longest time. True. And so I feel like the full breadth of Marco's emotions and Celia's emotions were already felt and were already at large before they physically connected. Yes. But see, that's, that, well, that's also what I'm talking about. Because, like, at a physical level, the binding obviously did something. But I'm also... Does it bind them on an emotional level? Yes. Oh. I feel like no. And it's hard to because we only really have Tsukiko's competition to look back on. It's not like we're given a list of past instances and what happened then. But based on Alexander's and Hector's conversations, it seems like there's been a lot of competitions that have been won. And it sounds like a lot of them were simply one. Not that it was a tragedy, tragedy like it was with Sukiko where she lost her loved one and Celia Marco who also fell in love. So to me, it doesn't seem like 
it binds on an emotional level? Because it seemed like Alexander and Hector were really surprised that Celia and Marco fell in love. See, for me, I didn't feel like they were... I didn't think that they would be surprised. I didn't think that they were surprised. I thought they were just kind of like, I don't want this to happen again. Because I think there, there's this one line that Sukiko says when she's talking to Marco. When she's talking about her competition. Or maybe she tells Celia. There's that point. Okay. Basically, at some point, Sukiko's basically like... Our mentors don't understand what it is to feel emotions, and they don't know the effects of the binding. Mm-hmm. Because Which, they themselves have never been bound. Like, they have been, like, the competitors have been. And so, but the fact that she says the effects of the binding, especially since she is talking about her competition and the fact that she felt like her only love was Hinata, her competitor. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's what makes, that's what makes me kind of, like, sit and wonder, like, is there something to this? I, I don't know. know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know either. I feel like that's something that would have to be asked to the author. I think so too. I think there's enough in the book that is resolved within the plot, but there are these little things that are mentioned which just makes you wonder. And I think that this is one of those things. Without the binding, would Celia and Marco have done what they did? Would they have felt as strongly for each other as they did? I think the Night Circus had a really beautiful, developed setting. The circus is really well thought out. I think every single aspect of it is detailed. From the grass, to what you can eat, what you can drink, to the performances, to what's inside the tents itself. It feels so real, and yet you know it isn't. And so because of that, you're sad the entire time. Because you're like, I can't freaking go here. (laughs) I think the way Aaron Morgenstern wrote it was brilliant. Because you get to see the circus through the eyes of multiple characters. But she also adds pages of which it's as if you were there. She writes it in second person, which is you. So you get to see the circus within your own, just kind of like in your own head. Just with you. And then you get to see it through the characters as well, which is a brilliant way to kind of make your setting a character itself. You get a 360 point of view. And just the way that she, the way that she describes it also is just magical. From the food to the colors to the tents to the people to just everything. I told Kami though when I finished the book through a text that the, the circus is so beautiful and magical, and it is just this uproar of entertainment. It's this fabled place that, like I said, you wish you could go. But to me, there is also something very sad and nostalgic about it. Because you have all these beautiful wonders, and from the patron's point of view, it's just everything you could ever hope. It's all of your dreams manifested. But then when you get the background information of what's going on behind the circus, you know, the people aren't aging, there's this competition going on, there's kind of a lot of pain involved. Everything else about the circus kind of gets this heaviness. Yeah, the more you get to know the circus, the sadder it becomes. You can The way that you see this is kind of through Bailey's eyes, simply because like when he was a kid, he would visit it and you know, he fell in love with it and everything. And then he kind of, like, there's that scene 
where they ask Bailey to be um, the proprietor, to be the caretaker so that the circus can go on. And as they're they're going through the circus, Bailey kind of sees, like, the behind of it all. The cloud maze, for example, where it says, The last time Bailey entered this particular tent, Poppet was with him and was filled with a dense white fog. Then, and Bailey has difficulty believing it was only days ago, the tent had seemed endless. But now without the cover mist, Bailey can see the white walls of the tent and all the creatures within it, but none of them are moving. But I actually thought the circus was a good kind of analogy to Celia and Marco's magic just in the first place. Because at first it seems very magical and for the competition. Oh, it's actually, never mind, never mind. This is just me. Sorry. (laughs) No, it doesn't make sense. Anyway, I don't know where to go from here. You were talking about how their circus kind of reflected their magic. And I, I, th- I think I know where you're going. In the beginning, Celia and Marco are at their most powerful. So their magic is reflected <laughs> no, in the circus. <laughs> because everything's so bright and vigorous and it has energy. But then the more years that go on, the more tired they are. The more exhausted they are. You know, Celia is literally trying to keep the whole circus up. And it's really pulling on her. And so the magic is still magic, yes. But... her her exhaustion is ringing through I think Marco was able to sustain himself a little better because he didn't directly tie himself to to the circus he only used it as a power source but even still just the longevity of time gives way for the fantastical to fall away to just I think just exhaustion it is a battle of endurance, and I think that endurance took its toll on the circus. It did. But I like the fact that everyone loved the circus so much and what it meant that they they tried their hardest to get it back up. And I love, too, how you feel the love for the people who created the circus, but you also feel the love of the people who visited it, like the um, like the following that Aerithiessen created. The reverse. The reverse. Thank you for saying it. Because I was going to say it wrong. <laughs> but I loved that. Because I, I felt like that was really realistic. I, I think when you have a circus that amazing, you would create a kind of a cult following where people would do everything they could to find the circus and figure out where it's going. And they'd write and report about it. And they'd create a little community within themselves of just respect and love for one thing. You know, it is kind of like nowadays. You know, you have fandoms and you have groups of people who just love different things and they connect through each other in wanting to love that thing. And so I think it was fun to see that in the night circus and seeing that they wear the red scarves and that whenever you see someone with a red scarf, you kind of give a secret nod because it's kind of like a secret code of, hey, we really love the circus (laughs) and it's kind of everything to us. I liked that every river was different and like they each had like their favorite tents or maybe they loved just roaming around and everything. It's just it was very it was a very wholesome aspect to the circus. It's probably just, the most pure aspect I'd say. Probably. Because they're they're just wholly able to enjoy it. They were. It's just like they, they didn't need to know the mechanics. They didn't need to understand everything or why it was there. They just enjoyed it for what it was. Mm-hmm. I would be a part of that. Oh, absolutely. I don't, guys, guys, guys. I'm thinking <laughs> it's gonna be in the United States. Road trip, road trip, hey, road trip. Hey, Fred, I can see you're interested. 
Okay, everyone get your scarves. <laughs> We're packing it up. What would you say was your favorite tent, though? My favorite tent of Celia Marcos or just in the circus's entirety? Entirety. Oh. Hmm. <laughs> I feel like I'd say the ice garden because I think that's where I would be most drawn to. Because the ice garden seems not only really beautiful and graceful, but it also seems quiet. And I would like to be able to wander in a world where it's quiet. Mm. That's, that's probably just because I'm a recluse. <laughs> <laughs> I would probably say, like you said, ice garden. Or I'd probably go for, like, the cloud maze mm. or the stargazer. Or I kind of just... Yes, yes. I stick with those. I stick with those. I think my first my first tent would be the ice maze, and then I think my second tent would be Celia, because I would like to see Celia perform ah, and, and her cool. magic. And I like that'd how cool. the tents were intimate, like there was only a few rows, it wasn't overcrowded, so everyone was able to participate. Mm-hmm. I'd be in the back and I'd be like, woo, Celia, <laughs> you guys know this isn't fake, right? It's real. <laughs> It's real. I actually think, as much as I love to see people perform, I would rather be in the tents where I could explore things for myself. Mm. So, like, I honestly, like, the cloud maze, I was like, I really want to go there. That sounds so fun. That's just the, oh, and the way that the characters interacted with the tents and the way that they were explained, it's just, it's you want to go there. Or at least you you at least want to have a dream like that. Yeah. Oh, and the food. Food. Every time I heard something, I was like, just freaking give it to me. <laughs> give me the food. Oh, the cider sounded amazing. Oh, and the caramel. And I know I'm going to get dinged for saying caramel instead of caramel. I just know it as caramel, okay? <laughs> I can't change something I've said a certain way my whole life. And the popcorn. Mm-hmm. I love popcorn. Also, something else I've loved about the circus and the night circus was just the premise of the circus. The fact that, and I think it even says this on the back of the book or in the description, you don't know when it's coming. You don't know where it's going to be going. It simply arrives and it only opens at night. That alone, I think, sounds like the coolest place on the planet because that just holds so much mystery. You know, you don't know how long the circus will be here. You don't know how, when it will come again. And so there's kind of a sense of urgency if, of, if you don't go now, you may lose your chance forever. I liked that it played into kind of the abstract vibes of being open late at night. Like, you know that feeling when you're up at 2 a.m., like maybe you're with some people and you're like, oh, I shouldn't be doing this because it's 2 a.m. and I should be asleep. I really like that it played into that. But also, like you said, just like you don't know when it's coming. You don't like the, just like the unknowing factor just like added so much more to that. And just the sense that the way you feel, the anticipation of this circus, you'll never feel like that again. And I think Bailey perfectly reflects that because the first time Bailey goes and then leaves, he has a yearning for it for the rest of his life where he's just seeking in every moment to feel the way he did at the circus. I want to feel that. I want to feel it. I want to yearn for something. I want to yearn. Yeah. I want to (laughs) eat. was cool though i loved the clock like just like this the sh- again the sheer amount of aesthetic that went the into aesthetic. it <laughs> i 
I mean, they got this master clockmaker who we'll get into later to make this giant fantastical clock that had a bunch of things that happened like every hour, but it was slow. And you like just the fact that you have, would have to sit and watch the clock to see all of its marvels. I really like that aspect of it. I loved how the clock was described, how when you first see the clock, it just looks like a normal clock. But then when that when you get to the latest hours, the clock unfurls into this dream and there's jesters and dogs. And I hope I'm remembering all the details right. But there's just everything fantastical, like a mix of a party of just imaginative things. And, and then when you reach the dawn again, the clock no- looks normal. So it's almost like you imagined it. And I love how that's just like, just one aspect the clock is just like one fantastical aspect Mm -hmm. but it's just like the details but it perfectly binds what the circus is into one thing Mm -hmm. and i also liked the clock because the clock wasn't made by magic the clock was made by an actual person well not like a real life person but a person in the book (laughs) a a a real person in the book (laughs) made the clock someone who wasn't magical someone who just had an eye for magic I loved, too, how with the clock, the clockmaker, Erthiesen, delivers the clock and he worries that he'll never be able to see it again. And he wonders constantly, oh, I wonder what happened to that clock. Because it's his prized work and it was an amazing work. And then he attends the circus and there is his clock. And it's like that's where his clock deserved to be all along. And I feel like that's where his love for the circus really started is that he had such a love for his creation and then to see his creation there, I think just really began it all. Which makes it all that more sadder. I know. I mean, he was just the most innocent and wholesome out of probably all the characters. Like, he just liked making clocks and he just really loved the circus and he created the reverse and he, he wrote about the circus. Like, like, he loved it. He loved it so very, very much. Probably more than almost anyone in the book. And then he had to go die. Die, and he wasn't even the target. He wasn't. He wasn't meant to die. His love for the circus killed him. I think it, his death is just that much sadder because Celia and Marco know that the circus is taking its toll on people. Because, like, you see it on Chandrash because he's going out of his mind. You see it with Tara Burgess, who died because she was trying to figure out what was wrong with the circus. Like, she knew... The the Burgess sisters, their observational skills are on point, so she knew something was wrong. And then Celia then starts to realize, oh, this is starting to have an impact on people other than me and my opponent. And it's a negative one. And it's a negative one. And that's just like, for, that's just like keeps happening until Herthiessen dies, who was a very close connection to Celia. And so then she's like, no, this has to stop. So I think, I think the Tara's death and also just the situation also just made Herthiessen's death that much more sadder. And I think too that Celia perceived Herthiessen as such an innocent as the purest form of joy ever received from the circus, that for him to die, a lot of her joy for the for the circus went with him. Mm-hmm. That's when the, that's when the circus like started like really became sad. That's yeah. where it kind of had that downturn. Yeah.
gonna lie, I would totally want to go to a midnight dinner. Even if I couldn't say, even if I couldn't add anything interesting to the conversation, I want to go just for the food alone. I just love the vibe, the aesthetic, just everything about it. Just think about it, okay? You have these fantastic dinners with foods you you wouldn't get anywhere else. Like everyone is like dressed up, you know, with like their beautiful gowns and suits and everything. You're discussing these wondrous, whimsical things and it's again playing into kind of the mysterious and like wondrous vibe of doing things at a time when you're not supposed to. You know, the fact that his dinners start at midnight. And also the fact that they are at Chandresh's mansion. Because great. If that sounds, that house sounds great. I would go to that house. Exactly. And the fact that like people can like kind of roam his house, but they'll never know the end of it. Kind of like. I love the the certain air of something yet to be discovered. I love that. I it's it's, it's a it's a it's a very specific feeling. Yes. As much as like you want to as much as I would want to go to the circus, I would also want to go to one of these midnight dinners. Freaking true as heck. I think it's kind of the energy of really imaginative powerful people coming together to create something and so you have that electricity of the anticipation of putting all your brains together and working towards something amazing let's just let's let's just talk about the people here okay the people invited to this first midnight dinner okay (laughs) okay you have chandresh the eccentric billionaire with a bunch of projects that he loves to create you have madame padva the ex-ballerina who is all the rage in Oko Tour. You have the Burgess twins, who, not twins, they're not twins. You have the Burgess sisters. They're often, many people think they are twins. But they're not. Who's older? We'll never know. Who is older? They, they, they never say. See? Little things. Little things that don't get resolved <laughs> that make you wonder. If I had a guess, though, I would say Lainey is older. Really? I would have said that Tara's older. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the world may never know. <laughs> But you have the Burgess sisters who are who are known for just like their little, their subtle nuances. Aid. No, that's the word. <laughs> for their subtle nuances in whatever they do. You have Ethan Barris who on, while he does look ordinary, can build these magnificent, th- just like the, 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 the characters. They were just all so interesting. And I think they had a great chemistry with each other. Oh, the dynamic was beautiful that's part of what made the midnight dinner so cool and they all stoked each other's creativity and i think they were all very supportive of each other there wasn't one person who was the odd one out it they became a team it's like they became a family yeah and then well a few of them died a few of them dead <laughs> dead <laughs> you have been dead. <laughs> In conclusion, I just I just want to make a midnight dinner happen at least once in my life. You know, maybe when the podcast gets 20 million listeners, we say, hey, special event. We're giving out tickets to the midnight dinner. Come join us if you want to talk. And <laughs> no one would apply. <laughs> well, first we need an eccentric billionaire. Hmm. I'll marry. I'll marry for money. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be hard, but I'll do it. (laughs)
the okay when i heard that well when it was discovered that the competition that what determined the victor was endurance that actually hit me harder than i thought it would mm-hmm. because this whole time alexander and hector are keeping away from celia and marco when this will all end constantly throughout the story celia and marco are going hey what when do you guys decide who's the winner? When does this end? How long does it keep going? And Alexander even mentions that the last one, Sukiko's, went on for, I think, what, 30 years? Oh, no, it, it went on longer for that. I think he said, like, 80. Oh. But, and so Celia and Marco are constantly questioning, when does this end? How does it end? Why do we have to keep going? And then Celia first discovers that it's endurance, Whatever magic can outlast the other, that person, the last person standing, wins. I really like that idea for a competition. Yeah. Especially for something as abstract as the idea of magic in this story. And just, like, with the air of mystery and... What's another word for that? Intrigue. Sure. Ooh. With, like, the whole... like Just, like, that whole vibe. The fact that... It's like, oh, it's not really your skills. And it's not really how strong you are. It's how long you're going to last. And that in itself is kind of like a different strength. Mm-hmm. I like, too, how it it was unexpected because you don't really think of magic as tiring. But then when you consider the fact that you, you're just performing over and over again, every day, every week, every year, is just another output of trying to create something, of trying to just give something to this world you see how it can quickly become exhausting. And with Celia and Marco as well, Celia is quite literally holding the whole circus up. With Marco, he's slowing down everyone's aging. Like, their their magic is taxing. And it's a, a subtle build of tiredness, I think. And so, I liked the idea of, at one point, one of us has to give out. It's an inevitability. Mm-hmm. If you were... if Okay, let's let's put out the the suggestion that if Alexander and Hector were to go into a binding and be in a competition, who do you think would last? So, if the competition wasn't about endurance, if it was about something else, I would say Hector. If but when I discovered that the competition was about endurance, that changed how I thought of the competition and how I thought one certain type of magic would win. So if the competition is about endurance, I would definitely say Alexander. See, I don't know because I feel like Hector has this competitiveness inside of him that would drive him to to win. But I think he's impatient. He burns bright, but he burns out. Mm, that's also true. Because even with his whole ghost problem right now, he probably would have succeeded if he hadn't done too much. If he too hadn't, soon. yeah. Mm. Interesting. So I, my question is, why doesn't Alexander just do that? And that's the thing. That's why Celia is like, "Hey, stop using us as your pawns. You two just actually be. You two just confront each other." And I think it's because they both fear they would lose. They both see a strength in each other that they think they themselves don't have. And so they don't want to confront their own weakness. But I also wonder if 
how long a battle between them would take and if one of them would eventually just get tired. Mm. If one of them would ever just concede. Mm-hmm. Maybe they fall in love. Who knows? I mean, they've known each other for a very long time. <laughs> there, there is the romance. Theirs is the romance. I mean, it's student te- No. <laughs> <laughs> had to choose who do you think would win the competition the night circus celia or marco oh celia i i thought celia too no if they if she was actually trying to win celia would most definitely okay I th- okay okay actually <laughs> i think celia would Oof. okay <laughs> i think marco would put up a good fight and he'd probably have a better mental state than celia would but she would probably be able to end it faster yeah. And I, because throughout the book, it's constantly being said to Celia that she is stronger. I think her father says it to her, and I think even Marco, Marco or Alexander says it to her at one point, too. I, I think, think Marco believes that Celia is stronger than he is. And with that, I do think she would win. I think the only reason why her endurance was lacking in this book is because she was trying to keep so many people safe. Mm-hmm. If she didn't care about the circus, she would have won a long time ago to me. Probably. But again, they're like there are so many little factors. But then it's hard too because I'm like, okay, well the game is about endurance based on how they they wove themselves into the circus. Marco was smarter because he used the circus as kind of a power supply versus Celia, who kind of sold herself into it. So in a battle of endurance, of course, the person who is just the generator versus the appliance, I don't even know if that's a good... (laughs) The person who is using the power source would last longer because their power is stabilized. I think Aaron Morgenstern did really well to make both of them strong components, though, because it's not an easy answer. It's not. We, we talked about it for, like, 40 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it really is not an easy answer. <laughs> she did really well with the intricacies of the story. And I think just the different ideals that went into the magic and learning it. And the whole wonder aspect. The wondering and the wonder. And the application of just everything that involved, involved the application of magic, the application of the circus, the application of the competition. Because I think they all intertwine very seamlessly. They do. Isabel was an interesting character for me for multiple reasons. One being her impact on the story, but also just her as a fortune teller. Like, me, myself, I kind of consider myself to be a little psychic. And I, I always loved the the idea of tarot cards. So, just that, I'm just like, <laughs> Isabel's pretty cool. <laughs> but also just, like, the mystery behind her. Because I think at some point, um, Marco mentions when he's talking about his notebook where he has the names of all the people in the circus. He's like, he says that he has Isabel's name in there, but her real name. Which means, like, Isabel isn't her real name. And we also know that she ran away from an engagement. We also, like, she has just, like, 
this mystery behind her too. Like all these characters have this mystery behind them, but like Isabel's like kind of interest has my interest peaked. I liked Isabel because she affected the story in a very subtle way. And I think she subverted the trope of the scorned lover because usually when you have a situation like Celia Marcos and Isabel's, usually Isabel would do something to sabotage Celia or, you know, there would just kind of be romantic chaos like that. But Isabel actually really liked Celia and she really respected both Celia and Marco. And I think slowly she realized her placement in the circus was just more than just spying on Celia for Marco. She found a family there. She found a home. She found a, she found where she belonged. And I think in that sense, she found where she's happiest. And so I think the circus became something more for her. And I think through the circus, she too became more herself. I liked the fact that she did have a little bit of magic with her, well, within her. That she did have the ability to read someone's future through her tarot cards, but also that she kind of learned some more later in the story. Like she, Isabel's very much the side character who you initially think is there just to kind of like make trouble and like this and make it like a love triangle, but that's not really it. Like she, like you said, she has a subtle impact, but it's a, it's an impact nonetheless. She, like, the, the, there was the whole thing with her making the charm with the tarot card and the ribbons. And, like, when that broke, I think that's when Heritheessen died, right? Yeah. And just, just like the, her, I think Isabel was a very good, almost kind of embodiment of the, the subtlety of the story in general, if that makes sense. I always like to just the thought of, the future. And I think the future, of course, holds many mysteries. We don't know what will happen, what will be. And so to see Isabel's little prophecies throughout the book, I thought was very interesting because she said certain things to certain people. She had certain insight that played out in the end. Her predictions came true or her warnings or her thoughts. You know, everything she said played a part later and I like the idea that she grew into the unknown. At first, she wasn't really with the future. Like, she didn't actively participate in the future, if that makes sense. But at the end of the story, she embraced what it told her and how she could exist within it, almost. I think one of my favorite things about Isabel was the fact that she she made connections with characters like she made that connection with marco like she was his spurned lover (laughs) yes yes she harsh but also like isabel was like marco's choice you know and i love that she also had this connection to sukiko because she didn't have to like neither of them had to have a connection with each other but they did and i like that how isabel was kind of like that person like I don't have to like you, but I do. Like, th- like I think a lot of um, of the stories, like, oh, they had to, like, they were bound to do this. But Isabel wasn't really in that. Like, she was kind of the the exception almost throughout her life, from fleeing from her engagement f- to meeting Marco to everything has always seemed to be her choice. 
And so it was nice to see someone have free will versus everyone else having quite the opposite. Yeah. I also just really liked her and Sukiko's relationship. Yeah, I feel like uh, Sukiko really emboldened her. I think she gave her the confidence to grow her abilities and to grow her purpose just outside of being there for Marco. Or I think Sukiko helped her realize that for a long time she has been here for more than just Marco. Yeah. But I also like that in the end, Isabel did end up helping Marco and Celia. Yeah. Like, she's the one that, like, disappeared him into the circus. I think there was a little bit of payback when she shoved him. Because <laughs> he landed hard on he his did. back. I he was did. like, that, that felt a little bit like revenge. <laughs> I appreciated that moment. I really did. But I think in the end, Isabel really hoped the best for everyone. And I liked having her good nature in the story. I really did appreciate that Celia never hated Isabel and Isabel never hated Celia. And we had quite a few interactions between the two of them. And I just liked how it was always very civil and it was always very friendly. And if they didn't have Marco between them, I think they would have been very, very good friends. But I think even with Marco between them, that that didn't keep them from forming a relationship or at least a friendship with each other. I think they did form a friendship, but I think it could have been better if Isabel wasn't like in love with Marco Mm. especially since she saw how he loved Celia but like wouldn't tell Isabel for years oh Marco 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 Marco. the one he did wrong he did he he, he, that yeah that was not good that was no but like the fact that she like still stuck with it she stuck with the circus for years for years, and she, and in the end, she still helped them. Like she's, she's still, she's a very kind soul. Yeah, I think that's kind of the perfect way to encapsulate her. It's just she's very kind. I'm gonna be honest. Out of all the perspectives in the book, when I first started reading about Bailey, I was like, eh, a little kid. Okay, like I just wasn't initially attached to him. His perspective came in at a time in the story where I was already in so deep with Celia and Marco and the midnight dinners and such that for him to kind of be thrown in, it it initially kind of put me off on him, if that makes sense. I just, initially I just kind of wanted to keep getting back to the other perspectives rather than reading his. But I read through Bailey's perspective and... The more I read it, the more I began to see its value. In the beginning, I think his perspective more so served as another way to see the circus. He's this little kid who sneaks into the circus during the daytime, and that's where he meets this girl who gives her his her glove, and her name is Poppet. And the circus leaves, and then for years, Bailey is just always yearning after this incredible place that he just wants to see again and again. And so slowly his perspective evolved from, oh, he's just another way to see the circus, to he's going to be how all of this ends. Slowly, as the story builds, you begin to understand that he is going to be the legacy of the circus. The circus is going to live on through him and through the love he first had for the circus when he first visited it. So at the ending, when I got to the ending, I appreciated Bailey's perspective, 
but I'm not gonna lie in the beginning I wasn't initially taken with it simply because there were already so many interesting things going on that I just did not find immediate value in his introduction. I will say I did the the same thing when I first read it but I really loved that Bailey's perspective kind of included Poppet and Widget and kind of their stories and like their powers and like their influence on the story and the circus, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, you do get to see uh, the circus through Bailey, probably more through through him more than any other character, which is like which really does add to the setting itself. But I mean, you also, through Bailey's perspective, like you said, he does turn out to be the legacy of the circus. But you also have the little things where he discovers, like, the bedtime stories tent for Widget. And he and Poppet have, like, their their little romance and everything. And kind of, like, his struggle with his family with, is he going to take over the farm? Is he going to go to college? Is he going to do this? And that whole thing. So I think, in a way, like, Bailey was kind of the character that you would relate to the most. Like, he was the one that you... Like, if you were in the story, you would be him. He was the most audience-like character. Yes. And so how did you feel about him becoming the new proprietor? I kind of liked his his place in the story. I liked that he was just kind of this regular kid from this regular family who was introduced into this fantastical world where nothing was what he was used to and that he loved and the fact that he was just kind of there, he was just, the reason why he was kind of chosen by um, Poppet and Celia and Marco and Widget was simply because he was there, he was the right person at the right time. I like that he just, he wasn't like predestined to do it. Like he was just there. He just happened upon the circus. I personally think that being there at the right time is kind of like destiny. To me, Bailey seemed like he was destined to take over the circus. I don't agree with that. <laughs> I don't agree with that. That's de- like I feel like the the idea of destiny is that everything is chosen for you. I I more so mean that it was his decisions that rightfully led him to where he belonged. I I, I believe in that. I agree <laughs> with that ideology. I don't agree with the other ideology. I also just. I appreciated his his impact on the ending. The fact that like it kind of all rested on Bailey. It rested on him, but it also wasn't being forced on him necessarily. Mm-hmm. Because Celia said, I want to give you something that we never had. And that is a choice. You're not obligated to do anything for us or for the circus. It's just more so if you have the love for it to want to. And I love that he, he chooses it partly because he loves the circus, but probably partly because he loves Poppet and he loves Widget and like their friendship as well. I thought that was very, that was very cute. And I liked how initially Bailey's first reaction was to say, yes, I will take over the circus. But then he stops and he goes, well, this is a far greater demand than just saying yes. It's not just about being at the circus forever and having fun for the rest of his life. It's about keeping alive this entire culture, this entire space this entire almost kind of like a universe alive and to keep it going to to keep this invention spinning 
basically. Which I like the fact that even though he, like you said, like he loved it so much, but he still took the time to like kind of hesitate and actually think about what he was getting into. Now with the ending though, the ending, the ending, Bailey's the new proprietor, Celia and Marco are wrapped deep within the circus, but the circus still goes on. Past that, what did you think about the ending? Well, first, I loved the addition of Poppet and Widget to the story. I liked the idea of them being born on the opening night of the circus and, like, kind of the years of progression with the circus are kind of followed through them. And the fact that Poppet and Widget both have magical powers because of the night of their birth. But I honestly, it was kind of mind-blowing, the ending for me, because Poppet goes to Tendresh and is, is like, I want to help you move on. Like, we will you sign over your proprietorship to this guy, Bailey, my friend, et cetera, et cetera. Lover. <clears throat> <laughs> what? <laughs> um, and I like how Poppet kind of, like, helps Chandrush with his new project of making this museum, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have Widget with um, Alexander, and they're having conversation. And you learn a little bit more about Alexander and the whole competition and, like, his reasons for doing things and his beliefs on other things. And then you figure out at the very end that Widget is the one who is narrating the story. And then you're like, wait, what? And it's in, it's it's incredible how Aaron Morgenstern does this because the very first line of the story is the very last line of the story, which is like, circle, circ, inception. And it's an identifiable line. Like you don't forget the first line of the book. You don't. When you hear it at the end, you immediately recognize it and you go, oh. The, the reason why Widget is talking to Alexander is because the only person left who has any, like, ownership or anything towards the circus is Alexander because he was there at the midnight dinners when they were first creating it so, so he could make it into kind of like the playing field of the competition. And so Widget is there to convince him to give it back. And as a price... Alexander says, write me this story. And and that's that's how it ends. And you're like, mind blown. What? Which I think Widget should get published. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Who's Widget? Like Aaron Morgenstern's like nickname's Widget. Like well, that would actually be pretty cool. That would be pretty cool. When Widget first starts telling the story though, and you do realize it's this it's this book, everything just kind of feels complete, I think. It does. I think, I also like that the, like, the very, very end of the story isn't with the characters, but it's with, like, the perspective of your perspective in the story, because it ends with you looking at, like, the in memoriam for Herthiasin and Chandresh, and then being handed a card where it says, um, Mr. Bailey Alden Clark, proprietor, and it has an email address. An e- Do you know when email was invented? The 90s. I thought it was the 2000s. What? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, okay, so basically, the email suggests that the circus has gone on for a very long time. To this day, essentially. Yeah, basically, to this day. That Celia and Marco in their corporeal... That's the word, right? Yeah. um, Forms are still keeping the circus alive with Bailey as a proprietor, which is a beautiful way to end it. A beautiful way to end it because then you know that the legacy does live on, that Celia and Marco do live on, that Bailey does live on, that the story isn't just a story, 
that in this universe, it is something that still lives and breathes to this day. This world is continuous. Or can be, dependent on your imagination. I will say, though, little hurt that the Night Circus hasn't come to our town yet. We have tons of fields where we are. Yeah, for no reason. (laughs) But for the reason of the Night Circus. That'd be so freaking cool. I'd go all the time. So I would like to make a petition. Come see us. Not really, though. Don't find us. We're, We're really not into socializing. We, no, don't talk to me. <laughs> I'd like to come into the circus when there's no one there. So, so like four be... in the morning? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll wear a red scarf. I'll be warm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all so much for joining us in today's in-depth discussion about the Night Circus by Erin Morgenstern. We hope that you will join us on our upcoming episodes. If you enjoyed our content, don't be afraid to subscribe to the series and follow us on social media. On both Twitter and Instagram, we go by the handle at Kiwi and the Bird. And remember, like a library, at Kiwi and the Bird, shh, happens. If you made it this far, get ready for some bloopers. Bloop, bloop, bloop. The Cirque de Rêve. The Circus of Dreams. Mm-hmm. Basically the coolest setting ever. It's like the most lit version of Circus Dole. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say it wrong? <laughs> Del- I thought it was Cirque du Soleil. Soleil. Yeah, it is. <laughs> It's basically the most lit version of Circus de Soleil. <laughs> I think it's do because it's a U. <laughs> Why are all these rules? <laughs> Anything else you'd like to add about the romance? That's my thinking music. Um, it's like Jeopardy, except not as scary. My favorite thing is that everyone's like, no, I, I don't need a guy, okay? I, no, I really don't. I just want someone to take care of me and someone to live with me and someone to... <laughs> I just want them to coexist with me at all times. But I don't need one, but I would literally die without one. <laughs> Which is essentially what Celia did. Yeah. I don't need a man, but if anything happens to Marco, you're all dead. I'm killing all of you and then myself. If someone throws him into a freaking bonfire, I am burning with him. I don't know why, but I really like clouds. Like, if I were to be reincarnated, I want to be a cloud. <laughs> Is it just so you can pee on people? And shock them. <laughs> that, that, Ooh, that, was, power. that was my B. Did you just do a sign language B? Though, the ch- chocolate little mouses with the licorice and those sound delicious. I don't like licorice, but I'd be known for oh, I, love, I love red licorice. I like, I love it. Not black, though. Oh, black is disgusting. Who, who, who in their right mind would eat that? Okay, it's like it, it's it's as if rubber was made into a candy. We're okay. going to circus du soleil. <laughs> I think it's Cirque. What is it? <laughs> Hand sliding down the a car window.
why? Just why? <laughs> I don't get it. It's to signify the passion, Taylor. It's to because... signify the sweat. <laughs> Gatorade, okay? <laughs> she was so enthralled in the throes of passion that her hand had to slide If my down. hand was ever that sweaty, <laughs> I, I would throw myself off this ship, I freaking swear. <laughs> I couldn't freaking <laughs> If my hand was even implied to be that sweaty, I'd freaking chop it off. Oh. Ooh, I'm gonna put this down. I can't have props. <laughs> I had a lip sync. The other kids would be like, hey, she's not seeing. I'm like, I have a note, okay? <laughs> I have a doctor's note. What do you have, Jeremy? I'm using an inhaler, okay? So suck it. <laughs> I'm not the captain, so I get the life mode. <laughs> We'd be delights. Yeah, we would. <laughs> <laughs> You're freaking right. <laughs> We'd be delightful. Any person would be freaking lucky to have us at their midnight dinner. Mm-hmm. I literally the gave myself goosebumps <laughs> from thinking of food. You go. No, I do it. <laughs> In which year, though? 1989. <gasps> Jamie, that's hot. Thank you. You really are a psychic of technology. <laughs> <laughs> It always ends with demons and your boy. It actually obviously does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>